Well, today we're going to launch into the final and most sacred section of the Gospel of John. It's what's referred to as the Passion of Jesus Christ. I'm sure you're familiar with that expression. There was a movie in a few years back called The Passion of the Christ. Uh, that word passion is a, is a term that's used to refer to all the events uh, surrounding Christ's crucifixion, his arrest, his trial, uh, the beatings, um, the, 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 the road to the, to the, to the cross, um, the Via Della Rosa, and, and uh, then the crucifixion itself. And, and so, uh, if you remember, uh, years ago now, I gave you a a simple outline of the book of the Gospel of John, or the, the book of John, and it really can be broken up into three sections. Uh, chapters 1 through 12 uh, record Jesus' public ministry, uh, and that covers a span of, of a few years. Uh, we've just recently completed the second section, which is chapters 13 to 17, which you could call Jesus' private ministry, and it really was everything that he said to his disciples in the upper room. That just lasted a, a few hours. And then now we are, are entering the third section, chapters 18 through uh, 21, uh, that, that we could call Jesus' passion, his passion, his public ministry, his private ministry, and now his passion. And what we're going to see now from chapter 18 all the way to chapter 23 is really just a, a few weeks' time um, obviously included in his resurrection and, and his ministry to the disciples after he was resurrected. And so uh, the, the, the event that um, initiated the passion uh, of Christ was his arrest. And uh, that's what we're going to look at here in chapter 18, verses 1 through 12 this morning. And so you can follow along as I read uh, this passage, John chapter 18 starting in verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the ravine of the Kidron, where there was a garden in which he entered with his disciples. Now Judas also, who was betraying him, knew the place, for Jesus had often met there with his disciples. Judas then, having received the Roman cohort and officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. So Jesus, knowing all the things that were coming upon him, went forth and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus the Nazarene. He said to them, I am he. And Judas also, who was betraying him, was standing with them. So when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Therefore he again asked them, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus the Nazarene. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he, so if you seek me, let these go their way to fulfill the word which he spoke, of those whom you have given me, I lost not one. Simon Peter then, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's slave and cut off his right ear, and the slave's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put the sword into the sheath, the cup which the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? So the Roman cohort and the commander and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. Father, again, we're grateful for this gospel and all that we're learning from it, all the ways we're being challenged by it. And Lord, you know how 
when I began to study this text this week, how it, it was just uh, like meat falling off the bone. And I just, just pray that that would be a similar experience for these beloved saints this morning, that they would have great insight and, 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 and see the practical implications for their lives from this account of Jesus' arrest, that we would be moved this morning by the majesty of Christ and comforted, Father, by His sovereign control over all things. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the recent arrest and death of a young black man in Baltimore named Freddie Gray has captured the attention of our nation and uh, led to angry mobs rioting and and looting, not just in Baltimore, but other uh, major cities. And uh, this is really just the latest in a series of high-profile arrests where someone ended up getting killed by the police because they were either resisting arrest or they attempted to flee. Now, few people anticipate ever getting arrested. No one wants to get arrested. Rarely does anyone willingly surrender to the authorities. Uh, Typically, they do whatever it takes to avoid getting arrested. And at times, they end up getting injured or killed as a result of the police simply trying to do their job. Be that as it may, either they or their communities are quick to claim that they're unwitting, unwilling victims of police brutality in situations that, that unfortunately got out of control. Well, none of these things that we're watching in the news uh, were true about Jesus' arrest. Jesus anticipated his arrest and willing, willingly surrendered himself to the authorities when they came to arrest him. And he was no victim. This was no accident. He was totally in control of the entire situation. And it's obvious that that was John's main point by the fact that he chose to include and to emphasize certain things here in his description of Jesus' arrest. We know that John has clearly stated his goal in writing this gospel in John chapter 20, verse 21, where he says this, excuse me, uh, not John 20, 21, John 20, 31, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. And so his whole goal in writing this gospel was to show his readers that Jesus is the Son of God, or better yet, that he was God himself in the flesh. And so in order to accomplish this goal, he purposely included those things from the life of Christ that best highlighted his deity, that it proved that he was God. And his account of, of Christ's betrayal and arrest is no different. As we've just read it, John recorded the dramatic event in very simple and direct terms in order to accentuate the sovereignty and the majesty of Christ, that Jesus was large and in charge. Notice verse 4, So Jesus, knowing all the things that were coming upon him, And then verse 9, he says, to fulfill the word which he spoke previously of those whom you've given me, I lost none. So John wanted there to be no doubt 
in our minds that this entire situation was under Christ's control. It was all part of his divine plan. Jesus didn't just anticipate his arrest. He arranged it. We know that because throughout the gospel, uh, John has already mentioned that the religious authorities had tried to arrest Jesus on a number of occasions, and yet he eluded them because it wasn't the right time. Go back to John chapter 7, and we'll see some of these uh, instances. John chapter 7, verse 30. So they were seeking to seize him, John records, and no man laid his hand on him because his hour had not yet come. But many of the crowd believed in him, and they were saying, when the Christ comes, he will not perform more signs than those which this man has, will he? Verse 32, the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering, heard the crowds muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to seize him. Verse 44, so division occurred in the crowd because of him. Some of them wanted to seize him, but no one laid hands on him. Chapter 8, verse 20. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, and no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. Verse 59 of chapter 8. Therefore they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Again in chapter 10, Jesus made this claim. Verse 17, for this reason the Father loves me because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me. But I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. And then lastly in chapter 10 verse 39, notice again, therefore they were seeking again to seize him and he eluded their grasp. The point being, Jesus could not be arrested until he wanted to be arrested. And this time was the time. And he didn't elude arrest. And ironically, this time, this was the time that the religious leaders had come loaded for bear, as we say. You go hunting for a bear, man, you come loaded. You got all the big, you got the big guns, you got the ammo, right? They came loaded for bear. They had even called for backup this time. It wasn't enough for the temple guards to go after Christ, but they asked the Roman soldiers to accompany them. I mean, they were ready for a fight. I mean, they were not about to let him get away again. This time, they were going to nab him. But to their surprise, Jesus simply surrendered. And in a very real sense, the mob didn't arrest Jesus. Jesus arrested the mob. One commentator titled his chapter, uh, in this uh, John, uh, John 18 as who arrested whom? Who arrested who? Is really the question. And so I want you to see this morning in, in John's account here of Jesus' arrest that there are five indications that Jesus was not unexpectedly captured by the Jews, by the soldiers, but he sovereignly controlled his entire arrest and voluntarily surrendered himself in order to carry out the divine plan of redemption which required his sacrificial death. I also want you to see towards the end that there are some very encouraging, very practical, very helpful uh, implications that we can apply to our lives whenever we face scary, hard situations that, that, that feel like things are totally out of control. 
because they're really not. And we're going to see that as we go through here. But what are these five indications? Well, we have uh, the secluded garden. We have the stunned mob, the shielded disciples, the severed ear, and the submitted will. Let's look at these five indications together this morning. Number one, the secluded garden. Verse one, when Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the ravine of the Kidron, where there was a garden which he entered with his disciples. Now Judas also, who was betraying him, knew the place, for Jesus had often met there with his disciples. And so after Jesus finished uh, praying for both his first disciples, uh, those that were in the upper room, uh, and all those who would become his disciples through their witness, uh, he left the upper room and descended down the east slope of the city of Jerusalem. So they were leaving the city itself, and they crossed over the Kidron Valley, which is this ravine that passes between the Temple Mount and the, the Mount of Olives. Uh, during the rainy season, it, it, it flows with water from the north to the south on its way to the Dead Sea. And when Jesus crossed the Kidron Valley that night with the disciples, the water was likely mixed with blood because there was a drain that ran from the temple altar down to uh, this, this ravine to drain away all the blood of the sacrifices. And, and you remember, of course, this is Passover week, and they say that there's an estimated uh, 200,000 lambs that were slain during Passover week. So you can imagine how bloody that water must have been as they stepped over that ravine. Now, this is obviously some rich imagery of Christ's imminent sacrifice at the cross where he would shed his own blood as the, as the, the Lamb of God who was sacrificed for us. And once they passed over that, that valley stream, they made their way up the lower slope of the Mount of Olives to a, to a garden. Now, John didn't mention the name of the garden, but we know it to be Gethsemane, which means oil press. That's what that word Gethsemane means. It means oil press because it was a grove of olive trees is really what that garden entailed. Um, and that I think there's also some symbolism in the name Gethsemane, the, the oil press, uh, symbolizing the agonizing prayer, how, how Jesus was pressed, if you will, and squeezed uh, during his time in that garden that evening. Um, again, John left out Jesus' prayer in the garden, um, but the gap between verses 1 and 2 here um, is filled by the Synoptic Gospels. We already read Matthew's account. Let's turn quickly to Luke's account, uh, because I really love what he brings out uh, in this particular uh, event. Luke chapter 22, verse 39. Again, this is, this is to fill the white space between verses 1 and 2 in John chapter 18. Luke chapter 22, verse 39, and he came out and proceeded as was his custom to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples also followed him. When he arrived at the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and began to pray, saying, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done." Now an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him, and being in agony, he was praying very fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. Jesus realized the horror that he was about to face on the cross when he would be made sin 
for us and be separated from God, and it caused him to break out in a bloody sweat. He was, I believe, some would say he was, he was sweating as if it were drops of blood. I think that he was so fervent and so intense in prayer that it's possible that his capillaries on the surface of his skin burst, and he was sweating, sweat mixed with blood. I saw that happen when Kelly was in labor for Zach. That first labor and delivery, she was pushing so hard that she began to, her face began to bleed because the capillaries just burst. And I think that's possibly, this is Dr. Luke's uh, recollection of this. And so you would think as a doctor, he would know what he's talking about. And so here we have this, the intensity highlighted in the gospel of Luke of this prayer. Now, some commentators, I thought this was interesting, suggest that, that the writers of the gospel were deliberate here in making a connection between the Garden of Gethsemane and the Garden of Eden. You say, what are you talking about? Well, we know that, that Adam is referred to as the first Adam, and Christ is referred to as the second Adam or the last Adam. And so the first Adam disobeyed God in Eden, bringing sin and death upon all mankind. And the last Adam, Jesus Christ, obeyed God in Gethsemane, conquering sin and death. And so there's some sweet imagery again here in John 18 in this garden scene. Now, one of the most unforgettable moments uh, of one of our recent trips to Israel as a church was when they took us to the Garden of Gethsemane, which is still marked today by a, a, a grove of ancient olive trees. And, and, and you go in there, you're like, whoa, were those here when Jesus was here? Those look pretty old, you know? These gnarly, old, huge olive trees. And, but really, what was, uh, what was so memorable about that time is when our guide said, I want to give you a few minutes just to pray privately in this garden. And I'll tell you, I will never forget how profound that was to, to sit there and pray in what could have very been the same location where Jesus prayed this agonizing prayer. And just to look around and to see people from our church kneeling down and sitting against the wall in various parts of this garden, just, just communing with the Father and just praying was, was, was just an unforgettable moment. Well, John picks up the narrative in verse 2 after Jesus had finished praying and had resolved to go through with the, crucif- through with the crucifixion. Um, this garden, he says, um, was a place that he had often met. Judas also, who was betraying him, knew the place, for Jesus had often met there with his disciples. Um, we already read in Luke 22 that this was a, a customary place for Christ to go whenever they were in Jerusalem. And because it was Passover, uh, you can imagine the city would have been jam-packed with, with visitors and probably have limited lodging. And so Jesus and his band were apparently camping out in the Garden of Gethsemane. They were like, okay, there's no hotels. We're going to stay at the KOA or something like that, right? That was the idea. Luke 21, 37 says this, Now during the day he was teaching in the temple, but at evening he would go out and spend the night on the mount that is called Olivet, the Mount of Olives. We know this is where he gave that famous Olivet Discourse. That was another amazing moment, sitting there on the wall, uh, on the slope of the, of the Mount of Olives, looking over at the Temple Mount and reading the Olivet Discourse to the group of people from our church. That was kind of a goose chill 
send uh, shivers up your spine moment that this is where it's going down, that Jesus' feet are going to touch down right here, and we're reading about it from his word. It's a pretty amazing thing. You need to go to Israel next time, all right? It's going to be a great trip, Lord, when we can do that again. So Jesus, the point is, Jesus knew that Judas would look for him there, and sure enough, along came Judas right on schedule. Earlier that night, we, we already have studied that, that G- Judas had left the upper room to finalize his plans to betray Jesus. Um, back in chapter 13, verse 21, the disciples, even at that point, had no clue. They thought Jesus had sent him out to, to go make some final purchasers or, or to do something, give some money to the poor. He had no idea that they had no idea that he was actually going to betray uh, their Lord and their master. And so the point is this, that John not only predicted that Judas would betray him, because that's what he did in John 13. He predicted that he would betray him, but he also planned the exact time and location that the betrayal would take place. Jesus sovereignly determined that he would be arrested at night in a remote place so that the nationalistic crowds who earlier that week had hailed him as the Messiah wouldn't rise up to his support and expect him to lead a revolt against Rome, because that's not why he had come. And so we see this first indication uh, of Christ being completely in control of the situation. We see this secluded garden that really was a perfect setup for Judas and this, this uh, mob of, 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 of police officers and, 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 uh, and soldiers. And so let's look at the second indication, the stunned mob, the stunned mob. Verse 3, Judas then, having received the Roman cohort and officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. So after pocketing the 30 pieces of silver uh, given to him by the chief priests and the elders, that was the price of betrayal. He was making money off this deal. We know he was a crook. He was, Jesus had said he was stealing money, right? John recorded that he was stealing money out of the, out of the treasury of the disciples. And so he, was, uh, he, he had a love for money. And so he, he betrayed Christ for 30 pieces of silver. And so after he had gotten his money, he led the temple police force, the temple guards, and a detachment of Roman soldiers from the Tower of Antonio, which overlooked the temple area. Now, it says a cohort here a cohort of Roman soldiers, which was a tenth of a legion, or about 600 men. So a legion was 6,000. Uh, a tenth of that would be 600. Imagine that, 600 soldiers to arrest one man. I mean, we've probably got about 300 people in here. Can you imagine twice as many of us going to arrest one man? Well, I would imagine that Jesus' miraculous powers were legendary by that point. And they wanted to make sure they had enough people to uh, respond to whatever he did um, to, to resist arrest. What a sight that must have been, that trail of torches descending from the Temple Mount to arrest Jesus in the, in the pitch dark night. We know that the Jewish religious leaders had originally intended to wait until after Passover to arrest Jesus for fear that a riot would break out. The last thing they wanted to do was was stir up the crowd, and being so large as it was, 
But in light of Jesus' increasing popularity among the Jews, they decided that they, they, they couldn't wait. And so the next best thing was to apprehend him in a remote place in the middle of the night. Guess what? Jesus was helping him out. He knew what exactly was the best time for this to go down. And little did they know that they could have left their torches and their weapons at home because they didn't have to look for Jesus in the darkness of that garden. Um, and he willingly and peacefully turned himself in. He, he, he stepped out of the shadows and just said, who are you looking for? Verse 4, so Jesus, knowing all the things that were coming upon him, went forth and said to them, whom do you seek? Again, Jesus was fully aware that the Jewish establishment had been plotting to kill him, and he had known for a long time now that Judas was going to betray him, and so he could have easily escaped again if he wanted to, but he didn't want to. His hour had come. And so again, he, just, he steps out of the shadows to meet Judas and his entourage who had come to take him by force, and he just says, hey, who are you looking for? And so here was Jesus alone and unarmed, and yet he was in complete command. He was in charge of that whole situation. Notice verse 5, they answered him, Jesus a Nazarene, he said to them, I am he, and Judas also, who was betraying him, was standing with them. So when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. And so again, this is uh, in the middle of the night, it was pitch dark, they wanted to make sure they arrested the right guy, and so they're like, hey, who are you looking for? Well, we're looking for this guy named Jesus, Jesus a Nazarene. I think it's interesting that John mentioned that Judas was with him, or with them, but he left out the traitorous kiss that served as the signal to the temple guards and the soldiers who they were to arrest. Hey, I'll kiss the guy on the cheek. I'll let you know who to arrest. That'll be the guy. Well, why did he leave that out? Well, as I mentioned earlier, John was focused on the majesty of Christ rather than the treachery of Judas. And so he chose to downplay Judas's disloyal kiss and highlight Jesus' supernatural power. And so he asked them, hey, who are you looking for? And they said, Jesus of Nazarene. And he said to them, I am. I know your Bible said, I am he. My Bible says, I am he. But if you notice, the he is in italics. In other words, it's not in the original. It was included in the English to, to give us a sense of what he was saying. I am he. But what Jesus literally said when he said, uh, they said, we're looking for Jesus of Nazarene. He said, I am. Does that sound familiar? Once again, here Jesus was taking on himself the sacred name for Jehovah God in the Old Testament. When Moses in Exodus chapter 3 verse 14 was standing in the face of the burning bush and he said, hey, when I go to, back to Egypt and I tell uh, the people that, that, that their God wants to release them, what, what, what should I tell them? Who, what's your name? And he says, tell them I am sent you. I am? Yeah, that means I am. I've always been, I am, and I always will be. I am, the great I am. And we know that Jesus has, 
has, has used this term on a number of occasions uh, already uh, throughout the gospel. It's recorded here uh, in, in John chapter 8, verse 24, for example, Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Verse 58, uh, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before, the, before Abraham was born, I am. In other words, I'm the eternal God who, who existed long before Abraham. In chapter 13, verse 19, from now on I'm telling you before it comes to pass so that when it does occur, you may believe that I am. And so Jesus made no qualms about claiming to be God. This was, he was establishing his deity. And the mob at this point in the garden was overpowered by Christ's majestic revelation. When these when this callous betrayer, Judas, and these experienced police officers and highly trained soldiers heard the voice of the sovereign creator and the sustainer of the universe, they were knocked to the ground as if by some supernatural force. They couldn't stand in the presence of the Almighty God. Some suggest, well, they were just startled. Just, just caught them off guard, and so they, they stumbled back. Seriously? I mean, these are trained, highly professional uh, military men, police officers. They weren't just startled. They were stunned. It's almost like he hit them with this invisible stun gun. And there's like, Boosh! and they fell backwards. In light of his commanding presence and, and profound words. It reminds me of what some of the temple guard had confessed when they came back empty-handed the first time when they had been sent out to, 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 to go arrest Jesus and they came back empty-handed and, and the, the chief priests and Pharisees said, hey, what, what happened? In John chapter 7, verse 45, it says, the officers came to the chief priests and Pharisees and they said to them, why did you not bring him? The officers answered, never has a man spoken the way this man speaks. We weren't about to touch this guy. I wasn't going to lay hands on this guy. They, they knew they were way in over their heads. And so we have the, the stunned mob as another indication that Jesus was in total control of this situation. He was no victim. Thirdly, you have the shielded disciples. The shielded disciples. Notice verse 7. Therefore, he again asked them, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus and Nazarene. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these go their way. To fulfill the word which he spoke of those whom you have given me, I lost not one. Now you can imagine that the mob had most likely intended to arrest not only Jesus, but his disciples as well. Uh, they were considered revolutionaries, rebel rousers, um, but Jesus, here in this text, we see, got the mob to confirm not once, but twice, that they were only looking for him. And so by doing so, he was really securing the release of his disciples. He was making sure that they wouldn't be taken along with him. Why, why did he do that? Well, I think Jesus wanted to shield his disciples from being arrested or injured or, or killed because he knew their faith at that moment was not strong enough to handle that kind of persecution. 
I think this is a great illustration of that principle in 1 Corinthians 10, 13 that says no temptation or trial has overtaken us but that which is common to man. And God is faithful. He'll not allow us to be tempted beyond what we are what? Able. But with every temptation, every trial, He'll provide a way of escape so we can endure it. So listen, God will never allow us to be in a situation that is more than we can handle, that is more than we can endure. We know that Jesus had just finished praying that he would protect those the Father had given him and that he wouldn't lose a single one of them except for Judas. That's chapter 17, verse 12. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me, and I guarded them, and not one of them perished but the son of perdition. Again, I think this is a a beautiful and practical illustration of Christ's substitutionary atonement or his vicarious atonement. In other words, that, that Christ died as our substitute in our place. Here we see him sacrificing himself to save his disciples. Here he was laying down his own life for the sheep. That's what he said he would do in John chapter 10, verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And in doing so, he fulfilled his own prophetic words. It says here, uh, to fulfill the word which he spoke, he himself spoke, of those whom you've given me, I lost not one. And he just said that uh, in the high priestly prayer. He also mentioned something similar back in John chapter 6, verse 38. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. I think it's interesting here. Notice in um, verse 9, there's probably in your Bible red letters. Do you have that? If you have a red letter edition that that highlights the words of Christ. Um, John quoted Jesus' words in the same way that he quoted statements from the Old Testament elsewhere in his gospel. What's the implication? Jesus' words are God's word. In fact, Jesus said in John 14, 24, the words which you hear are not mine, but the Father's who sent me. We're saved by hearing the word of Christ. Faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of Christ. Romans 10, 17. Colossians 3, 16. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. I think that's an important implication to look at. And so we have the shield of disciples, and that leads us to the severed ear. The severed ear, verse 10, notice it says that Simon Peter, then having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's slave and cut off his right ear, and the slave's name was Malchus. Now, we've already gotten to know Peter well enough to know that he was very impulsive uh, in his words and in his actions. He usually didn't uh, think before he acted or think before he spoke. And now, after watching his Lord just flatten the mob with a mere word, you can imagine that he, he, he had, on top of his impetuosity, that he had this sense of invincibility. Way to go, Jesus. All right, let's go, guys. He was, he was thinking that this was a, a complete rout. And they, were, they had chosen the right side to be on. And so here, 
Peter was not about to let them arrest Jesus without a fight, and so he grabbed one of the two swords that the Scripture says that the disciples had in their possession, and he lunged at the closest person who, who just happened to be the slave of the high priest. His name was Malchus, and it says that he cut off his right ear. Now, certainly he was trying to cut off his head. It's not like, hey, let me see if I can get this guy's ear off. Now, he, was, he was aiming for his head. He was wanting to take off his head, and he missed and he cut off his ear instead. Jesus could have said, hey, Peter, stick to fishing, okay? Because you're not so good with the sword play. What was going on here? Peter was making good on that boastful promise that he had made to Jesus earlier that night that if everyone else abandons you, Jesus, I will never forsake you. Remember that? Well, he was living up to that. And if you remember, Jesus warned Peter when he said that, that before the night was over, he was going to do what? He was going to deny him three times. To which Peter responded, even if I have to die with you, I'll not deny you. And so he was. He pulled the sword. He was ready to go down with Jesus if that's what, what, it, what it took. He was ready to, to die defending his master and his Lord. What a great example. But He's also an example of zeal without knowledge. He didn't have a clue what he was doing. And when Jesus had first mentioned to the disciples that he was going to die way back when, Peter pulled Jesus aside and he rebuked him and told him he would never let that happen to him. Can you imagine that? Jesus said, hey, I came to earth to die on the cross for your sins. And, and, uh, and Peter's like, hey, Jesus, come here. come here. That's not a good idea. And in fact, I will never let that happen. And what did Jesus say? Get thee behind me, Satan. Wow. He said, you're not setting your mind on God's interests, but your own interests. In other words, Peter wasn't just expressing what he wanted. He was also vocalizing what Satan wanted. And Satan did not want Jesus to die on the cross. And so by saying that, Peter was aligning himself with Satan. And so even now, Peter still didn't get it, and Jesus had to tell him, Peter, put away the sword. Appreciate the effort, but put away the sword. You're going to hurt yourself. Okay, you already hurt Malchus. You're going to hurt yourself or someone else. Put your sword away. In essence, what he was saying is, listen, I, I don't need you to defend me, Peter. In fact, he said in Matthew 26, if I, if I wanted, I could have called out to my Father in heaven, and he would have sent 12 legions of angels to come to my defense. You know how many 12 legions of angels is? Do the math, it's 72,000 angels. That's a few angels. And so Jesus stopped Peter. If I needed your help, I would have asked, right? But he also didn't want to jeopardize his heavenly mission and his upcoming defense before Pilate. Notice later on in chapter 18, verse 36, this is what he said to Pilate. My kingdom is not of this world. If, I, if my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting, Peter, so that I would not be handed over to the Jews, but as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. Furthermore, I would say this, that Peter's reckless act could have easily started a battle that could have ended up getting all the disciples killed or arrested, which was the very thing that Jesus was working to prevent. 
And so to ease the tension of that moment, you can imagine, swords drawn, ear gets hacked off, you probably heard all the Roman soldiers' swords come out of their sheets. And what does Jesus do? Always in command, always in control. He reaches down and he picks up that ear of Malchus and he miraculously heals it. Or possibly, it doesn't actually say he reached down and picked up his ear and reattached it. Um, he may have just put his hand up to his ear and made a whole new ear. Uh, you're not going to need that one anyway. I'll, let me just make you a new one. The point was he miraculously intervened. And, and in, in doing so, he modeled what he had commanded about loving your enemies and, and doing good to those who hate you and, and doing good to those who hurt you. You've come to hurt me. You've come to arrest me. I'm going to heal you. What a great example. And so we have the severed ear, and then finally we have the submitted will. The submitted will, verse 11. So Jesus said to Peter, put the sword into the sheath. The cup which the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? So at the very same moment that Peter was resisting God's will, Jesus was submitting to God's will. And of course, that word, the cup, it's a very, very important term. The cup, we already know what he was referring to, uh, having read the parallel accounts in Matthew, Mark, and, and Luke. But this term was used in the Old Testament to describe God's wrath poured out onto sin. For example, Psalm 75, 8 says this, For a cup is in the hand of the Lord, and the wine foams. It is well mixed, and he pours out of this. Surely all the wicked of the earth must drain and drink down its dregs. Talking about God's wrath upon man's sin. Isaiah 51, verse 17, Arise, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the Lord's hand the cup of his anger, the chalice of reeling, you have drained to the dregs. Thus says the Lord, the Lord God, even your God who contends for his people, behold, I have taken out of your hand the cup of reeling, the chalice of anger, you will never drink it again. What a great example, what a great foreshadowing of Christ coming and taking the cup out of our hands, if you will, and drinking it for us. Jeremiah 25, 15, For thus the Lord, the God of Israel, says to me, Take this cup of the wine of wrath from my hand and cause all the nations to whom I send you to drink it. And then in the New Testament, you'll remember this, when James and John were asking if they could sit at his right and left hand when he came into his kingdom, Matthew 20, verse 2, Jesus said, You do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the, what, cup that I'm about to drink? Seriously, you, you really want to go through with this? You're going to have to die, because that's what I'm going to do. And so here in the context of the Garden of Gethsemane, this cup symbolized God's wrath against man's sin that Jesus was about to experience on the cross. And Jesus knew that he was going to have to take the cup of wrath out of the Father's hand and drink it dry in order for his death to provide a way for his people to not have to drink or experience the wrath of God. He would have to drink it or experience it himself. And we know that what the scripture teaches is that, is that on the cross, God poured out all of his wrath for your sin, for my sin, upon Christ. And he faced the full fury of God's wrath so that those who would repent and believe 
would never have to experience that. God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved or rescued or delivered from the wrath of God through him, through Christ. Verse 12, so the Roman cohort and the commander and the officer of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. At that point, Jesus was handcuffed, if you will. And all the disciples scattered just like he had predicted and and planned. John doesn't record that. The other, uh, well, he, he, he records the prophecy of that in John 16, verse 32. He says, Behold, an hour is coming and has already come for you to be scattered, each to his own home, and to leave me alone. Matthew talks about this. Mark talks about this. In fact, Mark's... Uh, adds an interesting detail here that, that one of them ended up running off buck naked. Apparently he wasn't wearing much to begin with and uh, when they started grabbing people, uh, the disciples took off and uh, it says in Mark chapter 14, verse 51, they left him and all fled. A young man was following him wearing nothing but a linen sheet over his naked body and they seized him but he pulled free of the linen sheet and escaped naked. But there was Christ left all alone in total submission to the will of his Father. So do you see how John made it crystal clear that Jesus' arrest went off without a hitch exactly the way he had planned it? The secluded garden, the stunned crowd, the shielded disciples, the severed ear, the submitted will all indicate that Jesus was in complete control at the time of his arrest which proves what John wanted to prove, that he is the sovereign, all-knowing, all-powerful Son of God, i.e., he's God. And this same sovereign, all-knowing, all-powerful God is with you and with me whenever we face frightening, trying Gethsemane-like situations in our lives. Now, obviously, nothing that we will ever go through will even begin to compare with what Jesus experienced in the Garden of Gethsemane, but guess what? We have some of our own little Gethsemanes, don't we? And you may be in one of those times in your life right now. It's difficult. You feel like the world is falling apart. You feel like you're being crushed, pressed under the weight of some trial, Beloved, there is hope, there is encouragement for you in this passage. Let me give you just quickly five practical, helpful implications that we can draw from this text to apply to your life, to your own personal Gethsemane. Number one, first of all, what may appear like a tragedy is an opportunity for God to display His power and majesty. What may appear like a tragedy to you is an opportunity for God to display his power and his majesty. And you need to pray toward that end. God, that you would take this apparent tragedy and use it to put on display your power and your majesty. 
Number two, God is in complete control of whatever's going on in your life, and so trust him that he knows what he's doing. God is in complete control of whatever is going on in your life, so trust him that he knows what he's doing. Amen? Number three, find comfort in knowing that God will never give you more than you can handle. How's that? That's encouraging, isn't it? Isn't that comforting? Find comfort in knowing that God will never, ever give you more than you can handle. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Number four, whatever you do, don't be like Peter and take matters into your own hands. We're good at that, aren't we? Whatever you do, don't be like Peter and take matters into your own hands. And then finally, fifthly, submit to God's will for your life, even if it involves pain and heartbreak. Submit to God's will for your life, even if it involves pain and heartbreak. Father, we're so grateful for your word and how practical it is, how helpful it is, how hope-giving it is. And Lord, I know there's a lot of people here this morning who, who need the hope that can be found in this passage. And I pray that these implications, Father, would, would, would warm their hearts, stir their souls, and Lord, give them the, the strength and the stamina to continue to endure whatever it is that you've ordained for their lives. Lord, thank you that you know what's best and that you never give us more than we can endure. And I pray that you would grant us grace to submit our stubborn wills to yours and that, that our Life prayer would be not our will, but yours be done. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.